Welcome, everyone, to our featured podcast on thought leadership with Dr. Ray McKinley. Dr. McKinley is an expert on leadership and character development. Let's join the conversation now. Welcome, everyone. This is Ray McKinley. Thanks for joining our weekly podcast called Ride the Elephant Today, where we face the elephants in the room that are hiding in plain sight, and we just don't want to talk about them. We have a special guest today, and that's my brother, Grant McKinley. Grant is a father of six children and a few grandchildren, and he's an implant dentist in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. He's been a great friend for many years, as well as my brother. And Grant, thanks for joining me today for the podcast. Well, you're welcome, and it's my pleasure. Hey, Grant, you know, one of the things we want to talk about today is how beliefs that emanate from our personal histories really determine how we respond in every situation in our life. We only have to look so far as questioning why we respond the way we do sometimes, why we respond to our children the way we do, why we respond to our wife the way we do, why we respond to our friends the way we do. We really only have to look so far as our core beliefs that we have in, in our mindset that causes us to respond the way we do. And one of the things that I want to talk about is some of those core beliefs that we have oftentimes aren't even true. And they began early in our life, and they sometimes will hold us back and keep us stuck and cross problems in our lives that we may not understand. So in order for us to experience true joy and fulfillment, we need to consider those. You know, I just wrote a book, Grant, Ride the Elephant, The Journey to True Success, where I talk about confronting the 12 dichotomies that hold us back. So you and I have had similar personal histories, of course, because we're brothers. We've shared many of the same elephants in the room. Actually, one we were talking about earlier this week with just the two of us was the 30 years that we had an elephant in the room in our family that we never talked about. And what it uh, cost us individually as a result of not taking on the elephant in the room. As you have considered joining me today and reading the book, Ride the Elephant, and listening to my previous podcast, what comes up for you as a point of awareness that you have that you'd like to tell us about and have a conversation about? Well, thank you for this opportunity, Ray. We have discussed this very significant time in our lives when we were children, and quite frankly, for a period of over 30 years, we didn't talk about it at all. I listened to your last podcast in which you talked about our brother Brian and his passing when we were both children. And then the realization that 30 years later, you brought it up again while we were in Carambola, which obviously I was at that dinner party, and I recall you standing up and talking about it for the first time in the presence of the entire family. Many of us stunned, concerned how mom and dad would even respond to this evening of clarity, and what a remarkable experience that was watching my 11 siblings, 10 of them there. And the 11th one was there, too. And that was thanks to your enlightening 
and courage to, you know, say Brian's name in the presence of all of us and all of us go, whoa, we're going to talk about Brian. And you apologizing to your brother for ignoring him for 30 years. The visceral tone in your voice that night was remarkable. You were not talking with your brain. You were talking from your guts. And it was a visceral, deep tone in your voice that moved us all, in which then we all went around and we shared our own personal sense of responsibility for what had happened that night and how we were all in our own retrospective void of reality, that actually what really happened might have been quite different, but that we were responding to it in our own egocentric way that really was inappropriately inaccurate, taking on more responsibility for something that truly a bunch of five, seven, eight-year-old children would have no responsibility in. We were simply a family working, you know, at the family business and doing a job and a horrific accident happened. That That's why they call it an accident. But now at 45 or 55 or 65 years old, when we finally come to this realization, we make a whole new decision about what really role you were 10 at the time, what real role of responsibility could a 10-year-old take on? Well, obviously, you took on way more responsibility than you should have ever for Brian's death, as we all did. And so the real enlightening that happened at Carambola was, whoa, we're all blaming ourselves when really that's why they call it an accident. Really, none of us should be blaming ourselves, but we were riding around with that elephant on our shoulder all our life, failing to make a new decision about what happened to Brian on that day. I'm not sure why. Maybe fear. Fear may keep that elephant on our shoulder. I'm not sure why we carry around our elephants like we do, but I think that has been the real discovery that has come out of this, the enlightenment that has come out of this. Well, I think what happens is, you know, for me, I think one of the reasons we don't is we're embarrassed. We're afraid we're going to be judged harshly by something we bring up. I think we're also afraid that someone's going to disagree with us. And this is something we've been holding on to for a long time and we've been living with it. Well, we all want to be approved of. We don't want to be rejected by other people. So we fear being rejected. We fear not getting the approval of others. So we kind of keep these things quiet and don't talk about them. But the cost of them can be tremendous. I certainly had a lot of cost to holding that within me for years and years and years. You, in fact, have had cost of holding that in for years. When did you first realize, Grant, I mean, I know Karen Bola, 30 years after Brian died, uh, when we brought it up there, when did you come to terms with the decisions you might have made as a young boy? I think you were four or five at the time. And if I recall, you were put in the back of the Jeep with Brian, 
and you kind of were scolding Brian for maybe sitting down and you're, you're going to get in trouble. And what decisions did you make as a result of that, that you maybe later as an adult reflected back and said, hey, you know, I made a decision back here because of a belief I took on. Do you want to share anything about that, the, the awarenesses that you had and what the benefit was in the end for you to have that conversation? Sure. You know, I recall remarkably at four years old, I remember everything about that day. I even can still vision the dust from when you slammed on the brakes to stop the vehicle. I recall everything that happened that day. And yes, what happened is we had gone several times and there was a bump in the road and all the kids would pop up. Well, Brian thought that was pretty fun at, at his three-year-old brain. So he saw Margo and Gwen in the back jumping up and down from the bumps in the trailer. And so he wanted to get back to them so he could have fun too. But we were told to sit quietly. And Ray, you stopped the Jeep. You turned and you said, Grant, Brian, you sit there. Do not get down. And we started to drive again. And Brian continued to cry. And Brian crawled down and crawled over my feet, heading for the back of the Jeep. And when he crawled over my feet, I said to him, you're going to get in trouble, as a little five-year-old boy would say to his three-year-old little brother. And Brian took one more crawl step, if you will, and reached up to that gate, and that gate went down, and literally two seconds after I told him that, Brian fell out of the Jeep and, of course, died. And that was a moment in my life when being a good little boy had saved my life. And it was also the moment that Brian was not being a good little boy. I warned him to be a good little boy. I told him, don't go back there. You'll get in trouble. And it ultimately cost him his life. That was a tape recorder that started playing in my head at that very moment. If you are not a good little boy, you may get in trouble and die. And as I grew up, that became the message in my head that kept playing was, if you don't listen to me, you might die. If you don't listen to me, you might die. And that became my life. And of course, it kind of went quiet for a long time. Because I was just going to school, getting my education, becoming a doctor. But I was a good little boy. I never got in trouble in school. I never, ever got sent to the principal's office, unlike my brother Ray. Yes, this is uh, true. Yeah, very true. But Ray willingly got in trouble more than once. But with that said, I always was the good boy because of the fear I had of what the consequences might be of being bad. So ultimately, I started out my life. I got my dental practice going. I built some golf courses and did some other stuff. But 
when it really came back to play for me was in my children's lives and in my wife's lives. And I was married for some 35 years before this epiphany moment came for me. And that elephant, if you will, I began to ride the elephant instead of having the elephant just be in the room and that tape recorder playing in the back of my head and making so many decisions that had such dire consequences to my loved ones that were around me to the degree that after my children were raised, I didn't understand why they didn't want anything to do with me. I didn't understand why they had expunged me from their lives. My own six children did not want to talk to me. They didn't want to be because of this elephant that was in the room in my life, which was dictatorial. I was a dictator because if you ever disagreed with me, you might die. You might die. So the elephant in the room was deeply affecting my marriage. My wife asked for a divorce after 35 years. She felt totally unsafe in my presence. My oldest daughter, Gwen, who was somebody I should be very proud of, she had become a medical doctor. My children were going on with their lives doing great, but they wanted nothing to do with their dad. Because if they ever disagreed with me, I viscerally responded. When I say viscerally, I mean emotional way that my children did not feel safe with me. In other words, they were not allowed to challenge me or disagree with me in any way, in any way. I was a monster to my wife and to my children, because if they disagreed with me, they might die. That sounds like a really crazy thing to say verbally, but it was the tape recorder that was playing in the back of my head that I had absolutely no awareness of in my conscience, but I was responding to all life's challenges, first and foremost, with that tape recording. Well, yeah, yeah, I was a witness to this. I think one of the things that we have had in our relationship, we've always been very close. We've always talked about everything. We were able to talk about things, uh, used each other for wise counsel. We had a great relationship. There wasn't anything that we kept from each other. And it was crazy that we would go in our relationship for all these years and we faced the same experience that we had, uh, you at four and five and I'm, I'm at 10, and we just didn't talk about it until you mentioned like 30 years later at Carambola. But even then, it took some years for you later when the other people in your family were recognizing that there was some behavior in you that they just weren't going to be willing to be around anymore. And I remember you calling me and saying, I'm an island to myself. No one wants to be with me. Everyone hates me. And my wife's the ringleader. And I'm thinking, wow, that's a big, bold statement because you guys were very much in love and very close all those years. And it was extremely difficult to hear. And of course, we had some conversations about that. And it it took a day or two or a month or two or a year or two for you to resort that and go back and look at the beliefs that you took on as a young boy that were playing out in your everyday life. And you had to go back and change that. 
What did you do to heal that wound? Because I'm coming down to visit you next Friday. We're going to spend a couple of weeks together in Hilton Hill, my wife and I, Debbie and you. And one of the things that I'm looking forward to is having that time with you because I love being with you guys. You guys are fun. You enjoy being with you. You're great. We have great conversations. And I'm so glad that you healed this wound that was so large in your mindset that was causing division in your family. What did you do to make that happen? How did that come to be? And why did Debbie ever come? I've never seen her love you more now. I mean, you're still my brother, and I can't be too complimentary, but she loves you so much more now than she ever did. Tell us how that came to be. Oh, you're just afraid it might go to my head. Yes, being complimentary. <laughs> That's yeah. right. But, you know, it has been something that I've had to be very patient with because my wife and children had also been programmed. That was part of the process was they were programmed in a way to not feel safe and to be careful what they say, to not challenge me in any way. And so I had to be patient with the deprogramming of that once I had had my epiphany. But what happened, Ray, was my discussions with you were extremely helpful. And then I had discussions with our dear sister, Gail, which were also very helpful in in talking about Brian and Brian's death and really realizing, making a new decision about it, of course. But what really happened is I decided to go ahead and get counseling myself. Mm-hmm. My wife was going to leave me, and I told her, if I get counseling, will you at least give me a chance to change? And she said, well, I know they'll hold that against me in court if I don't let you go get counseling. They'll make me look bad. So, yeah, go get your counseling. <laughs> you know, that's pretty tough to listen to. That's tough. So she's already building her defense. Yes. So I knew I was in trouble. Yes, you were. So I went in this doctor here on Hilton Head, and of course, we just started, and I brought up the fact in passing, you know, my little brother Brian died when I was four, and I went on to say something about my rest of my life, and he goes, whoa, 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 let's reel it back here. How old were you? How old was your brother when he died? And then she just mumbled under her voice, uh, well, we have to talk about that. So we did talk about it. You know, I did most of the talking, as you do at those sessions. But at the end, she always kind of summary things. And this was probably on our fifth or sixth meeting. And she said, you know, Grant, I got a question for you before you leave. Is it possible that if your children and your wife don't listen to you, that they're going to die like your brother Brian? Is that possible? <laughs> I don't know. I listened to her say that, and I said, well, see you next week. I made it about halfway home, about 30-minute drive, and I had to pull off the road because I'd lost my vision. I blurred over crying so hard. So I pulled off, and I just wailed from the bottom of my gut, realizing that every decision regarding my wife and my children that I had made was based on, if they don't listen to me, they might die. And that was the elephant in the room in my life for 
my first 35 years of marriage, and certainly the first 55 years of my life. And the decisions I made, I know that that tape recorder played because my kids even said, yeah, dad, every time I bring something up, it wasn't even relative, but you'd always start talking about safety. Well, something bad might happen to me. I'd be talking about going to the library and you'd say, well, you can't go right now. The traffic's a little heavy. You might have a car accident and die. So it's just not worth it going to the library. And it was that bad for me. And I would tell my kids that, well, no, it's just not safe right now to do that. So in the end of the day, how my kids take that message, they took it as, well, you're just a control freak. You're not even rational. Your responses are not rational because what you're saying doesn't make any sense. Well, it didn't make any sense because the tape recorder was running the show. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, how's your relationship now with your wife and your kids? Is it healed? Are things better than they were? Well, the kids that live close to home and see me on a regular basis, you know, every week or so, they have evolved over the last five, because it's only been five or six years now. My wife and I, you know, it took Debbie a couple of years to really start to feel safe again. But now, God bless her, she argues with me about everything. So it's a whole new thing. And when she argues with me, I'm so happy that she's disagreeing with me because I know that she's feeling safe enough to do that with me because for the first 35 years of the marriage, she couldn't even do that. So I'm joyful at her defiance. So I completely respond differently to her defiance to me. I'm joyful about it because I know when am I going to get some of that? When am I going to get some of that when I'm well, when you start behaving yourself? When you start behaving yourself. Okay, well, then I see that. You know, when you stop stop laughing at me when I hit it in the water, you know, stuff like that. Okay. That's when you'll get that kind of relief. All right. Well, that's going to have to happen, I guess. So, Grant, you were telling me something, you know, we wanted to continue the conversation about the change that your family saw in you after you faced this elephant in the room and brought that forward to the family And then it just changed the dynamics in your relationships. Tell us a little more about that. Well, it changes everything. You know, when you finally realize the elephant in the room and you address it and you start to ride the elephant, as your book explains, it changes everything because you respond to everything with balance instead of this one-sided visceral response. You become more thoughtful. You become a better listener. You actually listen to other people. And you start to have genuine exchange of ideas. My gosh, my dental practice. Now I actually listen to my patients. I listen to their concerns, their anxieties. So it has changed me entirely how I relate to people. It's made me a better practitioner. My children, it takes time for them to be be reconditioned. And of course, I heard them talking to each other, and they've shared with me that, boy, dad has really changed. You know, I was sitting in a hot tub with your two sons, Ray, up at Gaylord, and we were sitting there talking, and Blake and Brian were there, which was just always so much fun. and. 
they brought it up. They said, oh, yeah, Dad has really changed. I mean, he's just a completely different person. And so I think both of us, your elephant was different than my elephant. But by riding the elephant, instead of having it on our shoulder, we really relate to our loved ones in such a different way. And I think the best way to say it is this. When you get the elephant and you ride the elephant, instead of having it bearing down on you, you become much more attractive to your loved ones. You become much more lovable, likable. So I am now seeing a whole different kind of relationship with my children and the ones that are around me, unfortunately, I have a daughter out in Oregon. I don't see, but unfortunately, because of, I think, the elephant in my childhood and with her, we've not been able to reconnect like I would like, because I think of all those years that she was conditioned. And even though I know the, my other daughter has told her, oh, dad's changed, she's not ready to accept that. So I have to be patient with that and understand that and just continue to be faithful and continue to practice this new life that I have of being a really good listener. And it has enriched my life in many, many ways with my siblings, with my patients. You know, I thought of this in dentistry and in dentistry, one of the things I've seen throughout my years of practice, and Ray, you might very well relate to this, is patients who had a traumatic childhood, a dentist that was rough or didn't use anesthetic or something when they were children, they carry that throughout their entire life. That fear Absolutely. and anxiety of a dentist, they carry it. And to watch a patient sit down in the chair and watch those visceral autonomic nervous system responses that cognitively they hate it in themselves. They're responding in this elephant in the room, if you will, that happened to them as a child in the dental office that now they can't even control. And they're apologizing to me. You don't understand. I had, when I was a child, this happened to me. I hear it every day in my office. Then I tell people it's so important as a child that your children go to a dentist and that they have a positive experience because as a child, then they become good dental patients for the rest of their lives. Well, I think that's very true in all aspects of our life. And I think it is why this elephant in the room may have in fact been developed in your own journey, Ray, because of your dental experiences and watching people respond in a visceral way that they can't even control. And it helped formulate your thesis about the elephant and riding the elephant and getting in charge of that. Because that's certainly where I relate to it in my everyday life with others. Well, you know, Grant, you bring up a very valid point. You know, you're talking about the dichotomy right now between success and true success. By all measures, people were looking at you as a very successful dentist, as a very successful man in Hilton Head Island. You built a golf course, you were a dentist, and you had all these people thinking you were everything in a bag of chips. 
you were successful as society would define it and as people would define it and as friends would define it. However, true success is something different. And true success right. is what you're experiencing now. And it's that feeling you have inside. It's what you're describing here today. So when I titled the name of the book, Ride the Elephant, The Journey to True Success, I am serious about that. Unless we ride that elephant and deal with those adversities we've had in our life, deal with those challenges that we've had, we're not able to deal with the challenges that our patients are having, that our family members are having, that our siblings are having, our sons and daughters are having, our wife is having. How can we bring that relationship to true success when we can't even have it within ourselves? And as long as we're having these old beliefs that we have from past experiences get in our way, we're never going to break through that pattern. And, you know, I find that it's interesting, some of these beliefs that we have as a young child that we carry on into adulthood. And, you know, when I taught this material to seniors in high schools for 15 years, I talked about the journey to true success for these kids. And it was amazing to me the stories that they had, the roadblocks that they had in their way, the beliefs they took on at a young age. Maybe it was they were told they were stupid, or maybe they were told by a teacher that they weren't very smart, or they were told by a teacher you're never going to be able to go to college, or whatever they were told by a respected parent or teacher or friend uh, can hurt a lifetime. And we take on that belief and then that cascades into other beliefs that we take on and prevents us from being in charge and having this fulfilled experience in our life. So for me, when I wrote the book, Ride the Elephant, it was my way of saying to all of us to look at these 12 dichotomies that we experience in our life that really get in our way of being truly successful. So that's been my journey. And that's why I've done what I've done. Uh, your journey has been your journey. My journey has been mine. And every reader and listener here today has their own journey. And it's not to make one yep. journey more important than the other. Everyone's journey is important. And recognizing those things that cause us to respond the way we do. And if they're causing us to respond in a negative way, we need to do something about it. That's very true. You know, everybody has their own journey. And my personal journey was a journey from fear, a fear-driven life, a fear that bad things would happen. To my journey became a love-driven life, to become a loving person. So my journey went from fear to love. That was my journey. And what I learned is when I was fearful of everything, that there was no growth. There was no happiness. There was a fear of everything. And as I journeyed through this process and realized what the elephant in the room was, and when I started riding the elephant is when love became the primary thought patterns in my life, which freed me up to be happier, to be much more dynamic in my relationships with others. I actually became a listener. I yeah. could listen to others. And if you're not listening, you're not learning and you're not growing. Mm -hmm. and you're not developing. So my journey was 
basically going from a fear-based cognitive process to a love-based cognitive process, which allowed me to enrich my life in the last five or six years. My greatest regret is that I wasted so many years in that dark place where the elephant just was pounding on me and pounding on me. I only regret I didn't come to this epiphany sooner. Unfortunately, pain is how we have to accomplish this. Unfortunately, you have to go through the love of your life, has to look at you and say, I'm done with you, Buster. It's over. Well, you know, pain pain certainly motivates. There's no question about it. You know, I think some people think, well, the only time real change occurs is when pain is involved. And I think that's true. And I also feel very strongly that when we consciously make an effort to transition from a place of behavior, a place of decision-making that is holding us back to a place where we make decisions that move us forward, I think we can consciously do that. And yes, pain and suffering is one way to get there, but pain and suffering is not the only way to get there. And I think one of the things we see, you mentioned fear. I think that's what your book's trying to do. Your book is trying, so you don't have to go through those great levels of pain to get there. That's exactly what your book is trying to accomplish. You're trying to relieve pain and suffering. That's your goal here. Relieve pain and suffering. Read the book. Yeah. As you read the book, what else struck out to you or when you listened to the podcast last week, you mentioned something to me earlier that struck an accord with you. You mentioned something about our mother's response to the situation that happened around Brian's death 30 years later. And you said that was very emotional for you. You want to share a little bit about that? Well, I remember as a little boy, my mom was so devastated at Brian's death. And I knew she was hurting tremendously. And I would run up to her at five years old and say, Mom, Mom, I had a recurrent dream at five and six. And the dream was that Brian was still alive. So I would run into Mom's bedroom in the morning and say, Mom, Mom, Brian's alive. Brian's alive. Being confused between my dream and reality. And I wanted so badly to tell mom and let her know that Brian was still alive. But refresh my memory, Ray, on what we were talking about regarding mom. Well, particularly when we came back from Carambola, because one of the things that happened. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was. Yeah. Thank you. Now you've triggered my memory. When I was listening to your podcast, the last one you did, I was just listening, and I realized I'd welted up and started crying at the part where you said that you came back from after we had that time and where we all talked in Carabola. And the next day, you decided to go over to buy the house and thank mom and dad for a wonderful trip. And what struck you was when you walked in the door, right front and center was a picture of Brian in the middle of the kitchen. And that really hit me hard. And I remember coming home from, I believe, college. I'm trying to remember my next time I was home. And sure enough, there was Brian's picture. And that's the first time I had seen his picture out ever, you know, ever since they were all put away when he died. 
And that was very healing. You certainly were the center of helping mom deal with it. You know, I could talk to dad about anything. I could talk to him about sex. I could talk to him about whatever I want to talk to him about. But I couldn't talk to him about Brian. I couldn't talk to him about Brian because he would walk away. And dad would never walk away from a conversation with me. Very, very close to my dad. Very intimate, close relationship. But, you know, there were little signs that happened through the years. When I did my dad's eulogy, I did a poem. And the last phrase of that poem was, Oh, how happy he must be bouncing Brian on his knee. And the whole family was in the front row there, and they just, everybody melted. And ultimately, to speak about Brian in Dad's presence, and he was in a coffin. So this was the first time I could actually talk to my brothers and sisters about Brian in the presence of my dad. But the only caveat was he had to be in a coffin. Yeah. And... So this thing has been, without question, the elephant in our life. And, you know, I think psychologists back then did not understand. We should have all been going to psychologists, every one of us, to start dealing with it back then. But instead, it stayed quiet. The elephant in the room stayed there for, Ray, 55 years for me. 55 years. And I certainly hope this book is helpful to people, helpful that they don't have to suffer like many of my siblings and myself suffered and my children now have suffered because of this elephant not being identified. So I applaud you for your courage to write this book and I hope others benefit because we have one thing we're limited by and that's the time in this life. And when we can have our life be enriched and live a richer life by reading a book like this and making sure that the elephants in the room in our lives have been dealt with, we can live a better, richer, fuller life. But it's got to be identified. And I applaud you for this remarkable piece of work. I appreciate that. You know, Grant, it's not a time to lament your story. Going back and looking at the elephant in the room isn't a time for us to get sad, isn't a time for us to lament, isn't maybe time to garner sympathy and compassion and understanding from other people. It's not for that. Going back and identifying the elephant in the room and having a conversation about it is a lifting up. It's bringing out something that has caused you to believe something that you no longer need to believe. And when you ride the elephant, you take that situation and apply it for good. You know, every day, every day, I taught this class to 17-year-old kids. I looked into their eyes, and I saw my brother Brian. And what I mean by that, I was giving meaning to his life and letting the student know that all these things that have happened to you in your life, and I knew that all of them, or many of them, had very tough situations that they had to go through, that they had elephants in the room that they were not addressing, that they couldn't talk to their parents about, they couldn't talk to their siblings about, they couldn't talk to their friends about. They were going through these tough times. And what you want to do is, instead of all this negative self-talk that comes out of your personal history, these negative 
concepts and thoughts and the negative thoughts you had in your mind and the way you raised your kids, Grant, and the way I raised mine was so costly to them and so costly yeah. to us. And then when we came to recognize at that certain point in our life where we finally said, you know, this is costing me way too much. I need to take a look at this and turn this situation, this foible in my life, and make it for good. And that's what you've done. You've turned those negations, those negative self-talk, into positive affirmations, positive reinforcements, positive love, caring, concern for your patients, for your wife, for your kids. I applaud you for that. God bless you for that. You're an awesome brother. Can't wait to come down and spend some time with you in Hilton Head, and I'm going to beat you on the golf course. So you better yeah, be you're going to have practicing. to. You got to quit begging for strokes, though. You know, <laughs> we, we need to go ahead and play even up. <laughs> well, we'll see about that. You know, I need a little head start. <laughs> I am your older well, brother, you know. <laughs> all so, right, buddy. So thank I you, love thank you. you so much. I love you, and uh, thank you for joining us. And thank you all of that joined us for this podcast. We hope you join us next week for Ride the Elephant today. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. Your feedback is important to us, and we'd like to hear from you. Email your comments and questions to ray at raymckinley.com. Join us next week for another informative podcast with Dr. Ray McKinley. Have a great week.